Soren Kierkegaard was a Danish theologian and he tells a story about um, a certain kingdom where there was a handsome prince and this handsome prince was searching for a woman worthy enough to be his wife and to become a queen. One day, while running an errand for his father, he passed through a poor village. As he glanced out the window of his carriage, his eyes fell on a beautiful peasant maiden. During the ensuing days, he often passed by the young lady and he soon fell in love with her by sight. But he had a problem. How could he seek her hand? He could command her to marry him, but the prince wanted someone who would marry him out of love, not coercion. He could show up at her door in his splendid uniform and his gold carriage with jewels and gold and attendance. But then how would he know if she really loved him or if she was just overawed and overwhelmed with his splendour? So finally he came up with a solution. He stripped off his royal robes. He put on a common dress. He moved into the village and he got to know her without revealing himself to her. <coughs> As he lived among the people, the prince and the maiden became friends. They shared each other's interests and talked about their concerns. And by and by, the young lady grew to love him for who he was and because he first loved her. And that's exactly the story of the gospel. The Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, he laid aside his robes of glory, garbed himself as a peasant, became a human being, fully human, and he lived amongst us. What a blessing that he did that for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just want to thank you so much for what already we've heard and seen here this morning. And now we want to answer that question, do you really understand? And the answer is yes, you do. From that um, lovely play that we just saw, we know, Jesus, that you are God that sat upon your throne in heaven, but you condescended to come to earth fully as man, to walk amongst our muck, and our humanity so that we could love you, so that we could have life eternally with you through the forgiveness of our sins by the death and the cost that you paid at Calvary. But Lord, this morning as we come to look at your word, my prayer is that beyond that incredible truth that every person here today will leave knowing one other amazing truth. And that is, Jesus, you were real. You had real humanity. You walked this earth in poverty and that you understand us. You are a God that understands and you're a God that cares. Help us to really know that truth this morning. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said that 
Remember, Christ was not a deified man, neither was he a humanised God. He was perfectly God and at the same time he was perfectly man. And in 451 AD, there was a creed that was, uh, I guess, instituted and formally adopted and it became known as the Nicene Creed. And in another life, when I attended an Anglican church, we used to say this every week. But basically it goes like, the part I want to read goes like this. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us and our salvation. He came down from heaven, was incarnate, that means became flesh of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became truly human. And the whole point is if Christ wasn't truly human, he couldn't identify truly with us and he couldn't truly understand us. And I think it's incredible that when we look and and Christ as a person was definitely uh, real and it was recorded not only in scripture, but it was actually recorded in other historical uh, books of the day and later on. So he actually did live without a doubt that was true. But of his 33 years that he lived here on earth, I marvel at the fact that 30 of them were lived as fully human, as an ordinary man, and only three was when he heralded his deity, when he performed his miracles, when he taught his teachings and he proclaimed himself to be the Son of God. And I think why did he spend ten times as many years living as an ordinary man and only three as proclaiming his deity. And I think there's a really good reason for that. And I think the reason is that he wanted us to know beyond a doubt that he can understand what it's like to be human, to live in our humanity. Our main text actually for this morning is Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, and it's in chapter 2. And it's verse 14 to 18. And it says, Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, Jesus also became flesh and blood by being born in human form. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he deliver those who have lived all their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We all know that Jesus came to help the descendants of Abraham, not to help the angels. Therefore, it is necessary for Jesus to be in every respect like us, in every respect. That means, you know, what Annette showed us here, you wouldn't understand In every respect he did, in every respect he experienced the things that we experience. His brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. 
he then could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and temptation, he is able to help us when we are being tempted. The word became flesh. Unless Jesus is fully human, unless he experienced our full humanity, we are still in sin and subject to death because what Jesus was not able to take unto himself to the cross, the experience of sin to the cross, he could not redeem us. So he had to experience our full humanity. And he did. You know, even when I think about the incarnation and that his birth occurred at a time in the history of the world where uh, there was an occupied nation, an occupied force in Palestine. And even Palestine itself was this obscure country when you take into account the extent of powerful countries at that time in the world. But this is where Jesus chose to be born. He chose a place that uh, where the people actually lived in fear and in terror. At the time that he came to earth, Palestine was uh, lorded over by a despot called Herod, who thought nothing of going and butchering all the firstborn babies in an attempt to kill Jesus. In fact, he'd killed, this man had killed some of his own family. And so this was the world that Jesus, a poor, obscure part of the world that he, as man, decided to come into. And although the conception was a miracle, it was immaculate, his actual birth was normal, although in poverty. He chose to come into the world in the normal way as every human being had come into the world. And, and some authors have marvelled at the fact that he chose a teenager. Some estimates have given that Mary would have been perhaps 14 when she had Jesus. And the other amazing fact about this was that she actually wasn't married. She was betrothed, but she wasn't married. And in that culture, in that time, that was just an incredible shame. In fact, it actually warranted death. And so Jesus chose the most audacious, unlikely, outrageous way of being born. And I think Jesus did that to herald to us that if you are marginalised, if you feel shame, if you feel accused, if you feel you are in poverty, then Jesus understands. He knows what it's like. Father Neville Figgis said, the Messiah who showed up wore a different kind of glory than the one that Jews were looking for. He wore the glory of humility. God is great, the cry of the Muslims, and it's a truth which needed no supernatural teaching to men. But that God is little, 
That is the truth which Jesus taught man. The God who roared, who could order armies and empires about like pawns on a chessboard. This God emerged in Palestine as a baby who could not speak or eat solid food or control his bladder, who depended on a teenager for food, shelter and love. Jesus, our Lord, defies all understanding of a king and yet it is his incredible humility and birth that sends a powerful statement that all who are feeling marginalised and on the extremes have a God who truly understands and truly cares. G.K. Chesterton says, alone of all creeds, Christianity has added courage to the virtue of the Creator. The need for such courage began with Jesus' first night on earth and didn't end until his last. And so we know from scriptures that there's not a lot about Jesus' first years of his life. We only know that he was also a refugee, that he lived for the first couple of years in Egypt. So he certainly came into the world with no great advantage. And in Luke 2, 52, it says that Jesus grew both in height and in wisdom and he was loved by God and all who knew him. So now in these formative growing childhood years, we get the understanding that he had no advantage, no predisposing advantage to any of his uh, contemporaries, his brothers or his sisters or his friends, that he actually grew in wisdom as he grew developmentally. He travelled no shortcut to maturity and he transcended none of the limiting aspects of our existence and he wasn't spared any difficulty in living in this fallen world. On the contrary, he really was one of us. He truly was human and he truly understands and cares for us. So how do we know Jesus really understands? Well, we get a glimpse from his gospel that he actually experienced and had the same sorts of needs that we all have as human beings. We know, for example, that he had real practical primary needs such as hunger and thirst. In John 4, the scripture with the woman at the well, Jesus uh, goes to the well in the noonday heat and it says Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well at noontime and he asked the woman, he said, please give me a drink. So our Lord, who was fully human, experienced tiredness and weariness just like we all do. He experienced thirst and in, in Matthew 21, 18, it says, in the morning as Jesus was returning to Jerusalem, he was hungry. So he experienced hunger as well. And we also know that Jesus, who was God, fully God, yet fully human, also had spiritual needs. We know that from scripture that he meditated upon scripture 
we know that in Luke 3.21, he says an audible prayer. And sometimes he prayed all night to his father. And he was submitted and obedient and dependent upon his father. And in Mark 1.35, we're told that the next morning, Jesus awoke long enough before daybreak and went out alone into the wilderness to pray. So if Jesus needed spiritual infilling and time to meditate and be restored by God, his Father, then shouldn't we? So should we. Jesus understands that this is one of our most significant and primary needs. But he also had psychological or emotional needs. And I think one of the greatest or telling examples in scripture of that is just before he was arrested and he went into the olive grove with his companions, his disciples. And in Matthew 26, 36 to 38, it says, Then Jesus brought them to an olive grove called Gethsemane, And he said, sit here while I go on ahead to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he began to be filled with anguish and deep distress. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and watch with me. And I think about that scripture and I think, You know, has anyone experienced depression? Anyone here experienced depression? You know, the reason I ask that is because we're told depression is the fastest growing medical illness in the world today. It's growing at an alarming rate, particularly in Western culture. Can God understand my black hole, my anguish? my circumstance, my situation? How would he really know what it's like to be depressed, to be anguished beyond grief? How would he know the sense of isolation? Well, he does know. You see, he was fully human. Even though he was fully God, he knows. He knows to the point of his soul being crushed to almost death. And what he needed at that point was someone to be with him, someone to come alongside him and support him, to care and comfort for him. He understands. He cares. The story of Lazarus in John 11 gives us another picture of Jesus' humanity and his psychological and emotional needs. We all know that story. We also know that Mary, Martha and Lazarus were very, very dear and close friends and Jesus frequented their home very often. And we're told in that story that Jesus was filled with compassion. We're told in that story that He felt great pity for the crowds that were mourning outside. We're told that he was deeply troubled twice 
And I believe in that story he was deeply troubled because death, as we heard in the Hebrew scripture, was not meant initially, originally for us. We weren't meant to die. And, and he was troubled, deeply troubled, that the fear of death and death itself should be part of our lives. We're also told that he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And we're told twice that our Lord wept. No, you've never wept, Jesus. And Jesus responds, yes, I have. I've wept. There's a story in Philip Yancey's book, The Jesus I Never Knew, about a Japanese novelist named Shusaku Endo. And he was actually, um, uh, he grew up in Japan just pre-war, prior to the Great War. And he was a Christian. And as a result, he was persecuted because he believed in a Western religion. So at the end of the war, he thought he would travel to France. He believed that from what he'd read, that France was a very Christianised country. And there he would experience perhaps acceptance. But what he found when he got there just after the war, because of his appearance, he was racially uh, ostracised. And so he, w- he found rejection in France. So after being in France, he decided to travel to Palestine and to really research the life of Jesus. And this is what he found. He found that Jesus too knew rejection. Moreover, he found that Jesus' life was defined by rejection. His neighbours laughed at him. His family questioned his sanity. His closest friends betrayed him and his countrymen traded his life for that of a terrorist. They preferred a terrorist to him. Throughout his ministry, Jesus gravitated towards the poor and the rejected and the riffraff. Endo decided that instead of finding a God and a king, he found a suffering servant, a God that was despised and rejected. And for the first time in his life, he understood that God understands. He understood that he could empathise with his rejection. So Jesus had needs. Jesus had emotional needs, he had practical needs, he had spiritual needs and Jesus was also tempted and we find that in that temptation story there were three particular ways that Jesus was tempted. The first was that he, the devil said to him, if you're hungry, which he was after 40 days and 40 nights in the, in the wilderness, turn these stones into bread. The second was when he took him up on top of the temple and he said, cast yourself down and you'll be saved. And the third was when he took him to the mountain top and the devil said, all of this is mine, which I think is quite insightful and amazing. He was talking about all the nations of the world, 
all of this is mine. If you bow down and worship me, you can have all of this. And so we know what our Lord did. He rejected the devil. And Gordon Moyes says that in many days in 2006, we've just transferred those three areas to other gods, the first being economic, the God of economics. The second, cast yourself down, show us your magic, the God of the entertainment or the entertainer. And the third, I'll give you all the power of all the nations, is the God of the politics, the God of power. And Yancey says, as he looks back on these three temptants, he sees that Satan proposed an enticing improvement. He tempted Jesus towards the good parts of being human without the bad, to savour the taste of bread without being subject to the fixed rules of hunger, to confront risk with no real danger, to enjoy fame and power without the prospect of painful rejection. In short, what the devil was wanting Jesus to do was to wear a crown, but not a cross. Our Lord came as fully human to suffer as we do, to die a painful death so that we could have life eternally with him, be forgiven of our sins, but also because he wants to shout to us, he understands, he cares. In Hebrews 4, 15 to 18, it says, This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same temptations we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and find grace to help us when we need it. You know, Jesus doesn't just understand. It doesn't just stop there. The identification with his humanity and ours doesn't just stop at understanding. Because he was fully human, he now sits in heaven and he intercedes for us. And we are encouraged with that truth to come boldly to the throne of grace and ask him to help us. So what would Jesus look like if he became incarnate now in Wodonga in 2006? What would he look like? Well, I can't say Wodonga, but a couple of months ago, I was doing a subject in Melbourne for a course I'm doing, and we were told that as part of our homework, Every afternoon we had to go and find a place in the inner city of Melbourne, go to that same place every afternoon, sit and observe and try and find Jesus. And guess what? I found him. I did. I found him in a coffee shop in Richmond. And we'll call him Milo. But Milo was the part owner of this coffee shop and he was the one that was serving cappuccinos. And I'd go in there every day with a group of friends and I'd observe. And 
It was about four in the afternoon, so it was a time when it was a safe time for the marginalised to come and have their coffee. There were no crowds there. And what I saw was the marginalised of Richmond, who were his regulars, coming into this coffee shop every afternoon. I saw the lady that carried bags with her sit in her same seat every afternoon and have her cup of coffee. And when she ordered her coffee, Milo would stop what he was doing and fully engage this woman and honour her in a way that I have to say was truly breathtaking. And she would go and sit in her place. And one afternoon we were there and Milo was sitting up at the table on a stool and this old man shuffled in and he got his stool and he moved it right up, right next to Milo so there was no room between him and Milo and he just sat there like this. And Milo turned and looked at this man and just gave him all the time in the world. And after a while, Milo came up to our table and he said, you're here every afternoon, you're new, what, what are you doing? And, and we said, well, we're actually observing Jesus. And this man's face, and I don't know if he was a Christian, but he was just so enraptured by the fact that here he was, part of his role to give love, to give out hope to people, really, in a coffee shop. And we were responding with love to him. He didn't expect that. He didn't imagine that, but he loved it. And it made me think about our God. It made me think that our Jesus loves to be loved. Our Jesus wants us to respond to him in love. You know, it should never cease to amaze us that the Christian hope rests on a man whose message was rejected, whose love was spurned, who was condemned as a criminal and given a sentence of capital punishment. Our audacious, amazing, wonderful God is seen so miraculously in the irresistible person and humanity of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He does understand and he does care. And I just want to conclude with this one little quote by Pastor D. James Kennedy. He said in a sermon, I remember years ago talking to a man in his home about Christ and asking him who he thought Jesus was. He said, oh, he's a wonderful man. He was the greatest man who ever lived, the most loving and gracious person who ever walked upon this earth. I said, let me tell you something I believe will startle you. According to the scriptures and the historic Christian faith, Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter of Galilee, was and is the eternal creator of the universe, the omnipotent, omniscient, an almighty God. Instantly, his eyes filled with tears 
And this man of about 55 or 60 said, I've been in church all my life and I've never heard that before. But I've always thought that is the way it ought to be, that God ought to be like Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, loving Jesus, we just cannot thank you enough that you came to earth fully human, that you came and you identified with us. You understood us. You care for us. You died for us. Jesus, how can we ever thank you enough? There's only one way that we can, and that is to not have made your life worth nothing. To come before you in full repentance, in full love and adoration, forever grateful for what you've done for us. If we've never surrendered our lives to you, then in this time we surrender. If we've never come to the throne of grace with boldness, then in this time, with all our humanity, with all our suffering, with all our shame and all our sin, we come to you, to the throne of grace, because you understand, because you truly care. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. We gather around the table this morning now and it's at this time that it's uh, perhaps most that we recognise our oneness in Christ. Um, the communion table is a time where we remember and give thanks for Christ's death on the cross and those who trust in him, who have given their lives to him or who have come to see who he really is are welcome to take part. And so it's perhaps best at this time that we welcome new members in because it's very much when we're gathering together and remembering the death of Christ that the church is perhaps at its best when we're together. So this morning it's great to have some people we want to welcome into membership and if I would just invite Bob and Winsome King to just come up to the front here and Candice Membry and uh, Fiona Christie. Why don't you come up just to the front here now? Let's welcome them, hey? Great. Well, we want to welcome you, Bob and Winsome, from, uh, who come over to us from America and at a Calvary Chapel there. And now Bob's doing some counselling um, here as well. And so is Winston doing some uh, stuff at Breathe on Fridays as well, so it's great. And we just want to say welcome. It's great that you're um, becoming members. And Fiona's uh, leading a small group as well and just a new mum with her and David. So we just want to say welcome. It's great that you're here. And Candice just recently made a recommitment and has been baptised. So it's just been wonderful that together these group, these people are becoming members. So why don't we just pray together. God, we thank you for your family. 
And we, we just thank you for that all who put their trust in you and follow you are your followers. But God, we thank you for these four people uh, saying that they want to be part of this family and identifying uh, in this way through membership. God, we pray that you would just bless these four as they continue to follow you and serve you. God, would you bless them as they use their gifts and as they find uh, friendship and fellowship here. And God, may the time that they serve you here at Wodonga Baptist Church be a great blessing to their lives. May they come to know you, Lord Jesus, more and more with each, each day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Take a seat. In uh, Luke 22, Jesus gathers with friends, um, his disciples. He gathers there to share with his disciples the Last Supper. And he says, um, then it says in Luke 22 and verse 14, At the proper time, Jesus and the twelve apostles sat down together at the table. And Jesus says, I've looked forward to this hour with deep longing. There's a, a human emotion of a deep longing that he shares when he's with his disciples. Anxious to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. Here's Jesus who's fully human and fully God, gathered with his disciples, knowing what he's about to experience, the sufferings. We know quite a lot about crucifixion. Uh, we know what happened when Jesus died. We know that they had uh, like a, a cat and nine tails which had clay, uh, little bits of broken clay and bit of, bits of a bone attached to the, to the cords and they would have been ripped down into his back and pulled. And the pain would have been incredible. The blood loss, uh, significant. And this was just before he even went to the cross. And then his hands and his feet would have been nailed and he, he suffered on the cross. Uh, uh, crucifixions said to occur through uh, suffocation where uh, the body becomes so hard that the person being crucified can't lift their head up high enough so they can get the breath anymore and eventually they lose the strength and they die. Jesus said, I've looked forward to this hour with deep longing, anxious to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering. Garden of Gethsemane shows that Jesus just knew how painful this was going to be. And he said, oh God, if it's possible, would you take this cup of suffering from me? But not your will, not my will, but your will be done. I want to do what you want. But he knew what was lying ahead. Then he says, for I tell you now that I won't eat it again until it comes to fulfilment in the kingdom of God. It says in verse 19, then he took a loaf of bread and when he'd given thanks, uh, and he had thanked God for it. And when he had thanked God for it, he broke it into pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body given for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. So he said to them, you know, eat this bread and remember what I'm going to be doing for you. After supper, he took another cup of wine and he said, this wine is the token of God's new covenant to save you. An agreement sealed with the blood I will pour out. Before Jesus' death, uh, in order to come before God, you used to have to offer sacrifices. You used to, uh, the, the death of the animal, the blood that was shed from the animal would bring about forgiveness of sin. You had to go through a priest. There was no way to come directly to God in that, in that time. And yet Jesus says, my death, He's going to institute a new covenant that's sealed with my blood. The shedding of my blood, the sufferings I'm about to bring will enable you to have forgiveness. Will be able to have people to come directly to me through faith in me. So we come around this table. Jesus invites us to remember that he suffered pain, that he died on the cross. And the words of 1 Peter 3 are true. Christ also suffered when he died for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners that he might bring us safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. Christ has died. He paid your penalty. He took upon himself your sins. So this morning, as we take and we eat, we can give thanks for his forgiveness. Why don't we pray together? And Dick's going to lead us in prayer at this time. Thanks, Dick. Our loving Heavenly Father, we've heard a beautiful message this morning of Jesus as an ordinary man. And yet in that message we've also heard that Jesus was an extraordinary man. And in the message again we have heard that Jesus was a merciful and a loving Saviour. He is our King and our God. And Father, we remember when Jesus gathered around the table with his disciples, he said to them that one of you will betray me. And each of his disciples didn't say, is it him, is it him? But rather they said, is it I, is it I? And we too, Father, as we gather around this table, we recognise in our own selves our weakness and our sinfulness. But yet we come to a merciful Saviour. And as we take the bread, Father, it reminds us of Jesus hanging on the cross there, giving his body and his life for us. And as we drink of the juice of the vine, we are reminded of his blood dripping to the ground which washes away our sin. And Father, we just thank you that you, our Lord Jesus Christ, just know us through and through, Lord. You have been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. 
And we come to you now as sinners to a saviour. Forgive us, we pray, Lord, and as we eat and drink together, bind us together with your love, we pray. For this we ask in Jesus' name, and to him be the glory. Amen. If you